Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Acts 23, chapter 23, verses 1 through 11. Our context is this, at the end of chapter 22, we had Paul having started a riot amongst the Jewish members, the Jewish people standing in the temple complex there. Paul is in Antonia Fortress where he is being rescued by the Roman commander Claudius Lysias. He's standing at the top of the stairs there addressing the crowd, and Paul gives his testimony. The people don't like the testimony because Paul said that he had had a vision from Jesus saying he was going to the Gentiles, and the Jews down there didn't like that idea of Paul ministering to those Gentile dogs. And so Claudius Lysias took him back up into the barracks for his own protection and called the leaders of the Sanhedrin together. He said, tomorrow, guys, you need to come down here. I'm going to bring Paul to the Sanhedrin, and we're going to get this straight, and we're going to figure out what's going on. So we start in verse 1 of Acts 23. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience until this day. Now notice that Paul called the, the Jewish big shots, the Jewish leaders in the Sanhedrin, brothers. These, of course, are not Christian brothers, but it refers to the fact that they are fellow Jews. Now, this is a good, intimate address, considering the circumstances. He's trying to be nice to them. Good communi- Paul always used good communication skills. He tried to identify with his audience the best way he could. He did that before the mob in chapter 22, and he's doing it now before the Sanhedrin, also in chapter 23. He tells the Sanhedrin that he has a good conscience. He says, look, I didn't do anything wrong, and, I, and, my good, and I've got a good conscience to back it up. Now, some Christians have said, now, wait a minute, how could these Christians have stumbled, if you will? They say, how could Paul have a good conscience? Because while he was a Jew, he was persecuting Christians. How could he have a good conscience when he was a Jew persecuting Christians? Now, the answer to that is, is that Paul was not a hypocrite when pursuing Judaism and attacking Christianity. He believed it to the best of his conscience. He thought he was doing the right thing before God. He meant it from the bottom of his heart. He was not a hypocrite. And and what he's saying is, I wasn't a hypocrite then, and I'm not a hypocrite now when I'm preaching Christianity. I just changed my mind. Now, of course, just because you do something with a good conscience doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do, because your conscience can be mistaken. Here's a good quote to that effect from Adam Clark. Paul, while acting contrary to the gospel of Christ, pleaded conscience as his guide. Conscience is generally allowed to be the rule of human actions, but it cannot be a right rule unless it be well informed. While it is unenlightened, it may be a guide to the perdition of its professor and the cause of the ruin of others. That conscience can alone be trusted in which the light of God's spirit and God's truth dwells. That conscience can alone be trusted in which the light of God's spirit and God's truth dwells. An ill-informed conscience may burn even the saints for God's sake. And so that's how you answer that problem. But yes, Paul had a good conscience. He looked intently at the Sanhedrin. It says in verse 1 here, one wonders, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown wonder, perhaps he may have recognized some of his former pupils in that Sanhedrin. He'd been gone now for about 20 years, but some of those guys could still be living and could have been some of his former pupils when he was a Jew. We go to verse 2, Acts 23. But the high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Now, the first thing is, I always do this, is don't confuse this Ananias high priest with Annas the high priest. This is Ananias the high priest. Annas the high priest was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest who was in office when Jesus was executed and tried in Caiaphas' house and Annas' house, too, for that matter, on Good Friday night. 
Annas was his father-in-law was was a retired high priest, if you will, a former high priest. But that was years ago during the during around eighty thirty when Jesus was killed. We're now up in the eighty fifties now, twenty something years later. We have a different high priest as Ananias. Now Ananias ordered those who were standing next to Paul to strike Paul on the mouth. Who were those standing next by? They could be officers of the Sanhedrin, or they could have been members of the Sanhedrin itself. We don't know, but at any rate. Paul got struck on the mouth. Now, this was a common way to shut people up in the East when they were not allowed to speak. It's a little bit brutal, if you ask me, but that's 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 what the deal is. However, it was unheard of in a judicial proceeding to strike a witness merely for saying, I'm, I'm innocent. I didn't do it, Your Honor. Bang! You get struck. <laughs> so, so Ananias did this. Now, this Ananias was the high priest from 47 to 8059, according to the NIV Study Bible the son of Nebadeus. He was noted for his cruelty and violence. When the Jewish war broke out, his own people assassinated him. And that's something to remember later on when we see how Paul responds to this cruel act of having him struck in the mouth when he's being examined. And he's an innocent guy, remember. Paul has done nothing wrong. Why did Ananias order him to be struck? Here are some options. Because Paul did not directly address Ananias. Ooh, and his honor was offended. Or maybe Paul did not give him a flattering title. Maybe he didn't call him your honor, high priest Ananias. Maybe he left his title off. Maybe it's because Paul directly announced his innocence with much courage and boldness. Those three options are from John Gill. The last one of which states this. Paul is saying, look, I'm innocent, guys. And he just asserted his innocence just a little too strongly for Ananias, who is convinced that he's not innocent, but that he's really rather guilty. Or maybe Ananias struck him because Paul professed to have a good conscience when Ananias knew that Paul was going around preaching this blasphemy that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus was the Messiah. We're going to shut him up for that. Bang, strike him. We go to verse 3. Then Paul said to him, Paul said to the to Ananias, the high priest who had ordered him to be struck. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Oh, I love this verse. You are sitting there judging me according to the law, and in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Now, I don't know what law it was that says you can't strike a witness, but I'm, I'm sure there was. that's just basic common judicial procedure. You don't do that. And Paul's pointing out, hey, you claim to be having a legal proceeding here, and you're acting in such a non-judicial fashion? What's the meaning of the metaphor, you whitewashed wall? A couple of options. Could have been referring to the fact that Ananias had an attractive exterior. He had his high priestly robes on and his whatever else he had on. But he was filled with unclean contents. His heart was full of garbage and excrement. This is the ver version, the vision, the, ver the uh, uh, interpretation of the NIV study Bible. So a whitewashed wall would be like a tomb. It looks so whitewashed on the outside, but it has dead bodies on the inside. Or the metaphor could refer to a wall that was whitewashed and it looks very substantial and strong and stout there in the field. But it's weak, and then the wind comes and knocks it over. And so Paul is telling Ananias, you're going to get knocked over. You look so strong and mighty, but you're weak, and you're going to get wiped out. NIV Study Bible prefers the interpretation that whitewashed wall is a metaphor for hypocrisy. And I think that's probably what it is. You whitewashed wall sounds more like hypocrisy to me rather than weakness. Apparent strength, but actual weakness. Next question, was Paul in error for doing this? Well, we're going to see in the next verse, it sounds like he apologizes. We'll talk about that in the next verse when he says, oh, I didn't know you was the high priest. So it sounds like an implicit apology. 
And so Paul is admitting he was an error, but it could be that he was not admitting he was an error. He was just trying to be—he was trying to be judicious, He's trying to be smart, trying to be expedient. He doesn't want to get a mad at him for striking a high priest, which, excuse me, for reviling a high priest, which was illegal according to the law. And so it sounds like he apologized for it. I don't know if you can really say he was in error for calling the high priest a whitewash wall because he was a hot whitewash wall. Might not have been expedient, might not have been politic to do it, but I don't see anything immoral about it. Adam Clark just says, no, he was not in error for doing it. Well, that's an open question. I'm not sure which way. I, I feel so good when I, I see him saying that that it's hard for me to say he made a mistake, but maybe he did. Now, when Paul says God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, what does he mean when he says going is to strike you? Is this a prophecy? It's going to happen. It's going to come, you whitewashed wall. Or is it an imprecation? May God strike you, you whitewashed wall. Well, if it's an imprecation, that's a lot stronger. John Gilbert says it's probably an imprecation because Paul in the next verse says, oh, I'm not supposed to revile the high priest. And an imprecation would be much more of a reviling than a mere prophecy that something was going to happen. I don't say how you can revile somebody if you say, hey, man, bad things are going to happen to you. Now, what would this striking consist of that Paul is referring to? Some unnamed temporal judgment? Could be. Could be death. Now, this actually happened, by the way. John Gill and Jameson Fawcett Brown say the striking that's gonna, that Paul either predicts or imprecates, predicts about or imprecates upon Ananias actually happened because during the Jewish War, 66 to 70 AD, the, the Jews, his own people, killed Ananias during that war. Or it could mean... God is going to strike you, Ananias, with eternal damnation, which assumes that's going to happen after he's temporally extinguished also. So what the striking is, whatever it is, it, it happened. So Paul, whether he was making an imprecation or a prediction, it happened. Ananias was struck. little strike on Paul's streak, a big, bad strike on Ananias's head. We go to verses 4 and 5 in Acts 23. And those standing nearby said, Do you dare revile God's high priest? Paul responds, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, question, why did Paul not know that Ananias was the high priest? Well, here's some options. NIV mentions, one, that Paul had poor eyesight. Remember that thing about I'm writing this letter in my own hand, and, you know, it's often said that Paul had bad eyesight. And he failed to see that the presiding judge was the high priest. Uh, well, I don't know. Somehow that doesn't grab me too good. John Gill and Adam Clark have another speculation that Paul failed to discern that the presiding officer was the high priest. Well, how could that be? In other words, he saw him clearly with his eyeballs, but he didn't realize that the man sitting there was the was Ananias the high priest. Or he, he just didn't know who Ananias was, didn't realize he was the high priest. How could that be? Paul had been absent from Jerusalem for a long time, and there was a frequent turnover of high priests. They were frequently brought and sold. The, the high priesthood was frequently bought and sold. And the Romans often put down one priest and raised another. All you have to do is read the history of this time. You can't keep up with all the high priests. So that's reasonable why Paul would not know that the man who ordered him struck was Ananias, the high priest, because he just hadn't met him yet, hadn't heard of him yet. Or it could be the high priest had moved to a different place and wasn't sitting in his usual place in the Sanhedrin, which Paul would know what the usual place was. Could be the high priest was not wearing his priestly robes at that time. But for whatever reason, he didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. 
So that's the second option. First option, bad eyesight. Didn't see him. Second option, didn't recognize Ananias. The third option is this. Paul was using pure irony. He's saying, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, because I can't imagine a high priest would do something as stupid as striking a witness who has not had a chance to give his testimony yet. Well, that's very innovative. I don't, I don't have in my notes who came up with that idea. I forgot to put it down, but it's an interesting idea. I don't think it's true, though. I don't think Paul was using irony. Here's another creative suggestion that you translate that not as I did not know that he was the high priest to I do not know that he's the high priest. In other words, hey, this guy up here who ordered me to be struck, I don't recognize him as high priest. I don't know if he's the high priest because I don't believe that he is the high priest. Jesus is the true high priest, not this guy. And in fact, Ananias could be holding the office legitimately, so I do not recognize him as the high priest. I do not know that he is the high priest. Here's a quote from John Gill to show that Ananias did, could very well be said not to hold the office legitimately. Quote, he had no right to the office of the priesthood when he was first made a high priest, after which he was sent a prisoner to Rome, during which time several succeeded in the priesthood. And at this time, not he, though he had got the management of affairs in his hands, was the high priest. At this time, not he was the high priest, but Jesus, the son of Gamaliel. In other words, there was a dispute as to who really was the high priest. Now, and Paul is saying, I don't recognize Ananias as the high priest. It's somebody else is the high priest. Well, that's very interesting speculation, too. I think the easiest thing is to say, is to recognize that this is to, is to believe that Paul just didn't recognize Ananias, didn't know who he was. Now, Paul backtracks on calling him a whitewashed wall because... Paul says, yes, it's, it's true. It is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, he was quoting there, Exodus 22, verse 28. You must not blaspheme God or curse a leader among your people. Remember, Paul knew the law backwards and forwards. He immediately pulled up that quote and said, you're right. I shouldn't have blasphemed God. I sh I sh excuse me. I shouldn't have cursed a leader. Now, Adam Clark says Paul never apologized for what he said, and Adam Clark believes he did not stumble that Paul did not make a mistake or a sin, if you will, in dealing with a high priest that way. But it does sound to me, in contradiction to Clark, it does sound to me like this was an implicit apology. I mean, it just sounds like it. I didn't know he was the high priest. And then he quotes a scripture that against himself. You must not speak evil of a rule of your people. It sounds like he's contrite and he's apologizing for, for saying that. But I will say this, you know, when you're dealing in a situation when there's authority, especially hostile authority over you, you really ought not to jump on your enemies there verbally like that. Or they're, going come, they're going to come after you, especially in a judicial proceeding, which this was a quasi-judicial proceeding. So I tend to think that Paul probably should have kept his mouth shut. And remember, the doctrine of inerrancy only says that what Paul and the other apostles wrote were inspired. It doesn't mean that every action they did was perfect. They were not sinlessly perfect. So it is possible that Paul could have screwed up here even though I think very rarely can you find a place where Paul screwed up. He was a, he was a fantastic guy. As far as I'm concerned, he's my hero. I wish I had enough the guts that that man had. We go down to verse 6, Acts 23. When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Now, we'll see here in just a minute. Paul pulled a fast one. <laughs> He's very clever what he did. But first of all, let's look at a subsidiary point. How did Paul realize that a part of the assembly were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees? Well, this is my speculation. I don't know. I didn't read this anywhere, but I'm just speculating that Paul 
used to be a non-Christian Jew in Jerusalem in the early 30s. This was now in the early 50s or mid-50s maybe, mid to late 50s. So you're talking about two decades early, he had been in Jerusalem, and he knew Paul. He was a big shot, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, and he, and he was a big shot in Jerusalem. He very well could have known who's who in Jerusalem, and it probably wouldn't have taken long for his expert eye to look around and say, oh, yeah, they're still at it, still divided up like they used to be. So when he realizes that if there's a division in the house, he appeals to that division, he divides and conquers. Instead of being in the minority of one, he got to sit back and watch internecine warfare between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. How did he provoke that warfare? Merely by saying, I'm being judged for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. Of all the parts of the gospel he could have picked out, Paul picked out the part that is really going to cause trouble because the Pharisees believed strongly in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, as I'm sure you are aware of. Now, Paul is said to be a son of Pharisees in verse 6 here. How is Paul said to be a son of Pharisees? Well, it could be his mother was a Pharisee and his father was a Pharisee. They were women Pharisees. That's John Gill's idea. It's plural. It's not just son of a Pharisee. It's son of Pharisees, plural. So it could be mother and father were both Pharisees, or it could be a textual variant is preferred here, which has it in the singular, Paul is a son of a Pharisee. But then the next question is, is which Pharisee was the son of? The NIV actually has it in the singular here. The Holman Christian Study Bible has its Pharisees plural. The easiest way, in my opinion, is the third option. I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. That means I'm a disciple of the Pharisees. I belong to the Pharisees, not by blood, but by choice of association. Or it could mean the fourth option, I am a son of the Pharisees, means I am in the family of Pharisees. I'm a descendant of Pharisees. My ancestors, from father to son, were Pharisees. Not count, not talking about the mother, but father and son. I'm a descendant of the Pharisees, in other words. Well, and we don't know what Paul's family history is, but I just think it's easier to say he's a disciple of the Pharisees. So he gets half the assembly on his side, and that's enough to get him out of trouble. We go to verses 7 and 8. When he, Paul, said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and no angel or spirit, but the Pharisees affirm them all. A little brief theological biography of the Pharisees here. They were kind of the rationalists, the liberals of their day. Well, we don't believe in the resurrection and miracles and angels. No, no, we just believe in science, and we believe in reason. Here's another verse pointing out the Sadducees' beliefs, Matthew 22:23. The same day some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him, to Jesus, and questioned him. We go to verses 9 and 10 in Acts 23. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently. We find nothing evil in this man. Isn't that great? The Pharisees are sticking up for Paul. The same Pharisees who murdered Jesus, now they're sticking up for his chief apostle. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Well, actually, Jesus had spoken to him in the spirit, so they were right about that. Verse 10, when the dispute became violent, so Paul started another riot. He started a riot amongst the hoi polloi Jewish people in the temple complex in Acts 22. And now here in Acts 23, he starts a riot amongst the Sanhedrin. Because the dispute is now not a mere theological dispute with a bunch of loud shouting. Well, that's, you know, that's unpleasant, but it's not dangerous. But now the dispute's becoming violent. The commander, that's Claudius Lysias, feared that Paul might be torn apart by them. Oh my gosh. 
Pharisees defending Paul and the Sadducees going to rip him up. That's a violent theological argument. Feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down. The commander ordered the troops to go down. That means down from the stairs there at that fortress Antonia. It's a two-story flight of steps. Soldiers went down. They ordered the soldiers to go down, rescue him, rescue Paul from them, from the Sanhedrin, and bring him into the barracks. Remember, the barracks were in the Antonia fortress there. Bring him, bring him from where? From the Sanhedrin, which moved from different places to place to place. I'm assuming here it was just in a room in the temple where it, it met a lot of times in a side room, one of those side rooms in the temple. Now, when the Sadducees, the Pharisees said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? As I said, they were right. Yeah, because in Acts 22, 6 through 9, we read the story of Jesus meeting, of Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. Verse 6, Acts 22. As I was traveling near Damascus, Damascus about noon, an intense light from heaven suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? He said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not, they did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And so, yes, there was a, a spirit. It was Jesus in the spirit has spoken to him. They were right. Paul appealed to that. You know, he appealed to the vision. He appealed to that vision, and he also appealed to the vision he had on his 15-day visit three years after he'd got converted in Jerusalem. He appealed to that vision in a trance that he had in where Jesus told him to go speak to the Gentiles. And so that must have impressed the Pharisees. They believe they believe in spiritual stuff. Now, the Sadducees are not so impressed by that because they're rationalists. We don't believe in angels. We don't believe in spirits. We don't believe in dreams. We don't believe in visions. Well, anyway, the shouting got loud. You know, nothing like a good theological argument to roil the blood. We go to verse 11, and we will finish up our audio here in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage, for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Well, if Rome, if Jerusalem has any practice for Rome, Paul has been trained well. He's had plenty of practice in preaching in adverse circumstances. But you notice that Jesus said, have courage. You would think that Paul had plenty of courage. He'd already exhibited it over and over again. But no, no, everybody needs courage. I don't care how much you've done. You always need more courage because preaching the gospel is difficult. People hate it. It's just I never can get over the fact that the, the, the truth that will set people free and give them more happiness than they ever imagined. There's so many people that instead of receiving it, they persecute it. They're fools, but they do it. Now, notice that Jesus is standing by Paul here in the barracks in the Antonia Fortress because Paul is about to make a transition from Jerusalem to Rome. Jesus often appeared to Paul in times of crisis, as the NIV Study Bible said. Times of transition, transition is always the roughest time in, your, in one's life. And Jesus gave extra encouragement with visions to Paul. Here's an example in Corinth, Acts 18.9. This is in Corinth on the second missionary journey. Then the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. That's because there was a bunch of Jewish people in Corinth who were trying to persecute him. Acts 22.18 is the previous chapter when Paul is telling about his vision in a trance three years after he was converted. He had come to Jerusalem for that 15-day visit. And so Paul says he saw Jesus telling him in verse 18, Acts 22, Hurry and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And so Jesus is encouraging Paul in this moment of crisis. You better get out of town or they're going to kill you. 
And then near the end of Acts, in Acts 27, 23, For this night an angel of the God I belong to and serve stood by me. This is on the ship to Rome during the storm, another crisis. So the application point here is very easy. When things get rough, that's when Jesus reveals to you, reveals himself to you the most. God will pull out all the stops to help his children when they're in trouble, and that includes visions. He'll give you extra wisdom, extra grace in time to need, of time of need. So now Jesus tells him, okay, Paul, you're going to testify about me in Rome. Now, remember, that was one of Paul's desires for a long time, as Adam Clark points out. In Acts 19, verse 21, we read this. When these events were over, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, I must see Rome as well. After I've been to Jerusalem on the end, at the end of the third journey, I must see Rome as well. Now, it probably wasn't the way that planned, Paul planned to get to Rome but in other words, but it doesn't matter. He got there, and Jesus told him he was going to go there and to have courage when he got there. Now, the application point here is let's don't worry about the way God does things. Just be happy for the results. I prayed some day the other day for a woman who had a horrible pregnancy and, and, and is running into trouble, adopting another kid, can't have another kid naturally without endangering her life. And the adoption situation is impossible. I just remember praying, God, I don't know. It's impossible. There's no way. There's no human way it can be done. But please, however you do it, miraculously heal a womb, find another doctor, another uh, way to adopt a baby, but just give her a baby. This, this is an interesting practical problem in one's devotional life. I call it over-praying. You, over, you pray for the details too much, and you don't leave God room to work out the details the way he wants to work them out. On the other hand, you can be too not detailed enough and too non-Pacific. God bless me. Well, you know, the whole thing about prayer, it's a conversation with God. And you can say, okay, God, I didn't think it was going to work this way, but help me deal with the circumstances. And thank you for working out your purpose anyway and giving me what I wanted. I can think of a thousand examples in my life praying for things. God did it years later, but it was not like I expected. Not at all like I'd expected. And Paul experienced the same thing here. All right, we're finished with verses 1 through 11 in Acts 23. In the next audio, we'll take up the conspiracy of the Jews to kill Paul as he's still under Roman protection. We'll take that up next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one. <laughs>